0: I'm Amy Hall. I'm here with Greg Kokel, and you're listening to Stand to Reasons hashtag STRask podcast. Welcome, Greg.
1: Welcome, Amy, and
0: welcome, listeners. We're glad you're here, and we're glad you send in your questions. Mm-hmm. We we couldn't do this show without you, so thank you for that. All right, Greg, let's start with a question from Tom. Okay. Why did the historical Jesus supposedly leave Earth? Jesus says, "quote to prepare a place for you," or quote. You should be happy for me that I'm leaving. In Hebrews, Jesus goes to present the sacrifice to God and sit at the right hand. The Jesus, the Jesus of the Gospels does not know this even when questioned.
1: Um, okay, I, I guess I'm mystified by that last comment. Jesus didn't know that he was going to leave the earth and sit at the right hand of the Father?
0: I think that's what he's saying, or he didn't know about presenting the sacrifice, or he didn't know exactly where, why he was leaving.
1: Well, I don't know why anybody would say that. Um, Jesus kept his own counsel on a lot of things. He didn't tell things that he didn't need to talk about. And um, there were lots of things that people didn't understand at the moment, even the, even when he did talk to the Jews and the disciples about the, uh, the, the, resurre- the death and resurrection, for example, which he began to speak more clearly about towards the end of his ministry, the disciples were still mystified by what that meant, because they did not countenance the idea that the Messiah, who they believed Jesus to be, would ever be killed. Okay? Now, it seems that Jesus could have cleared that up, Wait, 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 wait. You guys don't understand. Your theology has been wrong all along. Let me tell you exactly what I mean. I mean that in a few months, I am going to be killed. I'll be dead, and then they'll stick me in a tomb. Don't worry. Three days later, I will come out, and everything will be fine. Now, he could have done that, but he didn't. There was re- I presume he had reasons for n- not doing that. He did give information— and I think the reason that he might have give the, given the information that they didn't entirely understand then is that when it actually happened, they'll remember that he predicted this, and then they remembered that he said, you know things like that. so i, I don't I, I don't take Jesus' silence on different issues to to be Jesus' ignorance about things. Why did Jesus rise into heaven? Theologically, I don't know. I've never thought about that. Why did Jesus have to leave? Okay. Well, he said, I have to go so that the Holy Spirit can come. Okay. Well, the Holy Spirit was there in a fashion. In fact, he breathed the Holy Spirit on the disciples in the upper room at one point. Or maybe it was after the resurrection he did that. But that wasn't the baptism in the Spirit. That was a function of the the inauguration of the new covenant at pentecost and i'm not exactly sure all that was going on there either but um in jesus mind he was in he was leaving the earth to do some things that he wasn't going to be doing on the earth but elsewhere and the holy spirit was then going to be sent to take his place i will not leave you as orphans Okay, so there we've got the little mechanics. Okay, Jesus is here for now, then he's going to go away. But he's going to send another comforter, one just like me. Um, And in subsequent theology, we learn, well, this is God in a different form in the Spirit that now indwells us in virtue of the particulars of the New Covenant— and then does all kinds of other things, washes, regenerates us, gifts us binds us together in the body of Christ does a lots of empowers all these Christians so that the individual Christians taken as a whole in the church will be able to do much greater things than Jesus ever did which is something that Jesus had talked about as well so i'm just looking at kind of the bare particulars here why did it have to be that way and why did Jesus go away and he couldn't kind of send the spirit and you could have two of them both of the persons of the trinity there at the same i don't know and he never talks about it, but I'm, I'm not going to presume his ignorance. I'm going away and there's some angels up there waiting for me. I'm just going to float up into the sky. I'll see what happens when I get there. But I guess not going to stay here. No, it, it, it was all part of a preordained plan that God had. And we have this characterization of Jesus sitting at the right hand of power. Now, I don't, I, I don't think this is a physical description. I don't think there's a throne somewhere out there, and there is, like, the Shekinah glory of the Father sitting there, and then Jesus is sitting on his right hand, you know, and uh, and he's look. He, he, i don't think that's what's happening. We do have a vision of Stephen where he does see Jesus rising to stand, but I, I still think this is analogical. I think he saw something, what he described, or what was described in the text, but I think it's still analogical. I don't think Jesus is in a throne somewhere. I don't know— All of what is going on, and most of us don't because Jesus didn't reveal that. What he revealed is plenty hard enough (laughs) for us to figure out. So I wouldn't draw the conclusion that Jesus didn't know because he didn't talk about it, Um, and I, I can't answer why that happened. I don't know. But it seemed that it was deliberate. And the angel said, the one who just left is going to come back just the way you saw him leaving. In due time. Meanwhile, you got work to do. And that's the Acts chapter 1. And off they went to do their work. And um, and we're still doing that work because the work isn't done yet.
0: And we certainly see other places where Jesus doesn't tell people things on purpose. So, like when he... Sends away a demon. He doesn't allow the demon to say who Jesus is, or he tells people, "Don't tell people yeah. what I've done." And he had reasons for that. He didn't. He didn't want to be forced into a a situation where his crucifixion wouldn't be at the right time, or he people would try and force him to be king or whatever it was. There was a there was a way he wanted to reveal these things, and so the fact that he didn't say it doesn't mean anything. But I I want to say here, um, Tom says. He Jesus said to prepare a place for you. Um and then he says Hebrews says he presents a sacrifice to God sits at his right hand. Well, all these things are related. So, if Jesus Hebrews talks about how the the temple was a shadow of what was to come. It was there to show us the true thing that would be happening in the real temple not ba- made by human hands. Mm-hmm. So we see the the sacrifices made in the temple on earth, but what's really going to happen is Jesus is going to be our sacrifice before the Father, and he's going to cleanse the temple in heaven. Whatever that means, Mm -hmm. Um, his sacrifice will bring about our forgiveness. So if Jesus is raised to the right hand of the Father and he's they're acting as our priest.
1: And constantly making intercession for us, Constan- as says in Hebrews. Yes, Bible.
0: constantly making intercession. He's our priest before the Father. He's, he's brought his own blood into the temple and acted as our sacrifice, presented that before the Father. All of that is preparing our place. Hmm. That's exactly what he's doing. He's going up there, cleansing us. Interceding for us, preparing our place so that we can go to be with the Father. So there's nothing contradictory about mm-hmm. these different things he well, said. Well, he does
1: talk about dwelling places. The King James uses "my Father's house" are "many mansions." So there seems to be a, a certain locus of sorts that he's referring to, as opposed to just um, providing a means of sacrifice. How do you how do you characterize that?
0: Well, I think that's it, it's still entailed because we can't go there unless Jesus goes as our priest mm-hmm. before us. So he's preparing a place, Whether whatever aspect of preparing that place is, it's mm-hmm. all related okay. to the work he's doing before the Father, even now as our mm-hmm. priest. So um, I, I think maybe these things seem like they're different things to Tom. Maybe he's not aware of how they all fit together.
1: Hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: All right. Uh, let's go on to a question from... Rhino. Rhino? Rhino. R-Y-N-O. Okay. (laughs) Not like the rhino. Okay.
1: um, (laughs) There's a couple of different rhinos now that I think about it. (laughs) One's an acronym, but go ahead. Okay.
0: So um, I'm just going to, I can't think of the word, offer a little uh, clarification here. In this question, he's going to say something about William Lane Craig's view, and I'm not sure this is his view, right. so um, I'm going to use his name, but it could really be anybody, any any leader that you know of that has this view, and it right. may not be William Lane Craig. So here's the question. How can a salted Christian like Greg Kokel believe in once saved, always saved, and William Lane Craig, also salted, believe you can lose your salvation? Mm-hmm. I'm certain both of them have the Holy Spirit living in them. So how can it be possible for them to have a contradicting witness?
1: Well, my question is, how could it not be possible? Um, I don't know what Bill Craig's view is on this particular issue. I do know he's Arminian, but— He's he's
0: a Molinist, but I guess that would be a greater—
1: Molinist is a way of cashing out the Arminian project, okay? But he is definitely not Reformed, not a Calvinist in any way, shape, or form. He would— completely disavow that but you could have people who are armenian with regards to how election and salvation works and still believe that once you are regenerated it that act of regeneration that you chose in a libertarian armenian way so to speak um becomes
0: irreversible
1: can i say that irreversible <laughs> thank you um, and J.P. Moreland holds the view. So there is, even though there's an Arminian, in a sense, path to salvation, there is security in, uh, the, the, the salvation itself because that can't be reversed. Okay. So, uh, you can, you have these different categories. Now, I don't know where Bill fits, but the broader question is how, really, how can two Christians who are reflective thoughtfully on the details of scripture and having the same Holy Spirit disagree. and the answer is because we're human beings. How could we how could there not be that? Um, it, it does want does does Rhino think that if two people have the spirit that the spirit is going to dictate their their beliefs completely so they're utterly coincident? every single thing that one born-again Christian believes, the other one believes exactly the same way—primary, secondary, tertiary, you know, distantly relevant theological Um, issues—there's no reason to believe that, except a misread of a passage in John I think it's fifteen or sixteen or maybe fourteen there are this is the upper room discourse. I've talked about this before. Maybe we have on this show here, Amy, but um, the when 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 Jesus promises the Holy Spirit, he he says, here in fifteen when the helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth proceeds from the Father, he will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning." So, there's a statement there. There's a couple of other statements that are made, but one of the statements, which is harder for me to find, says that he will lead you to all truth, okay? He will lead you to all truth. Oh, here it is, chapter 16, verse 13, "...but when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth." Okay, now, this does raise a question. If we have the Holy Spirit who is going to guide us into all truth, then why is it that those who have the Holy Spirit disagree on matters of truth? Um, by the way, one could ask, why is it that we have any more books of Scripture? This is the Upper Room Discourse. Jesus is giving the promise that the Holy Spirit would guide to all truth. If the Holy Spirit is directly and immediately guiding to all truth, all Christians, why any more Scripture? Why does anything need to be written uh, after the Gospels, or after John 16, for goodness sake? Because now it's the the job of the Holy Spirit, not the work of God's subsequently written Word, like from John, and from Peter, and from Paul, and from Luke. So, hmm, <clears throat> if we're reading the text that way, there's something wrong with the way we're reading it. Obviously, there's something wrong because there wouldn't if we take it that value, face value. It means there's no scriptures required, and secondarily, why don't we all agree? Which is kind of the question. The answer is, and, uh, and some people are, are going to push back on this, which I understand, but I just want you to think about it. The answer is we've misunderstood this passage he is not talking about every christian he is talking to the disciples who are being given apostolic authority to speak for god and this by the way is why we have the what's called the analogy of faith that is that we are we we approach the scripture and the different writings writers with the basic assumption that being inspired by god they are not disagreeing with each other They all coincide. Now, where there appears to be a disagreement, now we have to work at understanding and interpreting more precisely. But they're not disagreeing with each other. Um, And if if we hold that, of course, we're undermining the authority of Scripture. So with that authority in mind, which is the authority we're bringing to this text to ask the question to begin with, so I'm presuming that for the sake of discussion we have to have authors that are speaking with authority. Jesus also said, I will bring to remembrance all that I have taught you. Okay, well, wait a minute. He's talking to them about the three years that they spent together, and he's going to bring that all to remembrance so they can write it down and they can do what they need to do with it. But they're authorized by God, and the Holy Spirit is giving them this gift. He's not giving that gift to everyone, how do I know that? Because he obviously hasn't. <laughs> Even in people who disagree on this particular verse and the meaning of it is a demonstration that the Holy Spirit is not committed to giving each one of us all truth. Okay, that's our job to figure it out. I'm not saying the Holy Spirit doesn't help, but he doesn't authorize our translate our um, interpretation. What authorizes our interpretation? is the words themselves and discovering the meaning of the words in their context and their flow of thought, etc. Well, wait a minute, there's other things in the the Upper Room Discourse that don't apply just to the disciples that apply to all of us. And I said, yeah, you're right. So what we have to do is we have to be discerning and look carefully. When Jesus is speaking the Upper Room Discourse, is he speaking to the disciples as apostles, or is he speaking to the disciples as apostles? Christians, okay? And that's not always hard to determine, but this one's easy, because if he's speaking to disciples as Christians, and all Christians would be led to all truth, then obviously Jesus got it wrong, because we have these differences of opinion. Even people that love the Lord and, you know, are friends with each other, and and, uh, we still have strong disagreements, and Bill Craig, and I mean, the way the question is worded, you know— wondering why me and Bill disagree well that's why so we all have to go to the text we have to make our case for the text but that's the only other thing I could think of why would he why why would anyone think that all Christians would agree when they obviously don't simply because they have the same spirit
0: I get this question a surprising amount of times actually people are really confused why Christians disagree what I found interesting in this question is was uh, he says at the end is how is it possible for them to have a contradicting witness, which seems to me that there it is what you're saying, Greg, that that his understanding of of uh, of how we come to our to know what the scripture is saying is by some sort of witness from the Holy Spirit. So I, I appreciate everything you said about we have to actually work at hermeneutics to understand how to interpret things. It's not that we get our interpretation simply by praying and then we receive some sort of uh, message from God. We have the message, as you pointed out, and it's written down, it's objective, and it's our job to read it and to use good hermeneutics, which is the um, interpretation, interpretational skills um, to understand it. Now, the the question of why we disagree... I think more generally, there, there are a few reasons why Christians do disagree on things. I've thought about this before, because like I said, people ask me about this. Mm-hmm. First of all, I think we're all sinful, so we tend to see what we want to see. And that applies to everybody. And we don't know which of our positions are being affected by this, but surely, to some extent, all of us have to deal with this, this, uh, temptation to match what we're reading to what we want to read. Mm-hmm.
1: confirmational bias.
0: And, and it, well, this should be a great incentive to not sin. <laughs> because, and, and I've said this before to apologists, when you, your obedience enables you to see things more clearly. Mm-hmm. As soon as you start sinning, you are going to try to twist certain mm-hmm. ideas, certain doctrines, certain passages to match your sin. And this is something that should terrify all of us mm-hmm. and be a huge incentive to be obedient because we are clouding our ability to see things correctly. Now, I don't want to say that the people who disagree me agree with me are bigger sinners than uh-huh. I am. Right, right. <laughs> don't hear me saying that. I'm saying we all have to fight this and this mm-hmm. affects everything that we uh are trying to understand here. Secondly, I think some people have a second authority that they have an addition to Scripture. And that mm. could be maybe their denominational position or like a confession. It could be— A
1: philosophical s- perspective.
0: A, it, it could be a philosophical perspective. It could be a leader. It could be any sort of thing that they are using to interpret the Bible. And if the Bible is being interpreted through that other authority, then—and it's under that authority, then you're going to get some sort of—, of um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? There, there's going to be some sort of a twisting, a twisting is the word. I mean, there, there'll be some... Distortion. Distortion. <laughs> Thank you, Craig. <laughs> Thank you. I couldn't think of that word. The result will be distorted. Mm-hmm. So you've got the um, our sinfulness, you've got other authorities, and then you've also got um, some people aren't as good at, at hermeneutics as other people. Right,
1: right, right. And that's
0: probably... a. a great deal of this has to it's do huge, just huge. with Well, this. they
1: don't know, just in a certain sense, they, they don't read the Bible like they read other books. Or other newspaper articles mm-hmm. or whatever, and so much of what they do with the second should be done with the first, but you also have you have two thousand to four thousand years of time that has passed. You have multiple different languages uh, in the original. you have culture uh, and customs and particulars and that we don 't completely understand that are being made reference mm-hmm. to there are literary devices that we sometimes miss, so we we don 't take um, as literary devices. And so, all of those are factors. Here's another example. I think this falls into this category, and this is in First Corinthians chapter two, and in this verse, I hear it quoted a lot. It says, "Things which eye has not seen, and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love Him." Now, this is a reference that Paul is citing out of Isaiah sixty-four, and. People say, see, we look at all—we don't have no idea what God has for us. Well, that may be true, but that's not what's being spoken of here, because the next verse says, for to us God revealed them. This was a mystery in the past, now it's been revealed. Okay, but so that's one step, taking it out of context. But then the next step is, wait a minute, who's the us? To us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. And uh, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is from God, that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual insights with spiritual words. And then he contrasts the next verse, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Okay, now, I think a case can be made, and I haven't worked all this out, that something similar is happening here. The Old Testament, there was all these things that were mysteries, and now the apostles have the divine insight to help us understand what they mean. But when the apostles take these things that they have spiritual insight on and speak it to unregenerate people, the natural man— They don't accept the things of the Spirit of God, their foolishness to him. Um, It may not be that this particular passage is saying that God gives the Holy Spirit to everyone to accomplish this the same way. Because if that were the case, then we would have a lot more agreement (laughs) if we have the same Spirit. Now, uh, to me, I I think that Upper Room Discourse citation... John 16. I feel really strong about my reading on that. I'm not entirely sure about the first Corinthians chapter 2, but something may be going on Mm -hmm. like that here as well. Paul's insight into those passages.
0: Well, the good news about this is, if you have two people you respect who have opposite views on an issue, you're not at a loss. You don't have to throw up your arms and just give up an ever-knowing What you should think about it. Because the good news is there are ways to evaluate how they came to their conclusions. You can, you can ask, you know, follow their reasoning. Ask, did they stay within the text to make their case? Did they appeal to something else? Ask what their train of thought was. How did they get to this conclusion in the text? and are they considering it in the context of the chapter of the book of the entire bible mm-hmm. and are they looking at it in light of the genre these are all principles of hermeneutics and a great book on this topic is how to read the bible for all its worth right so if you're if you're not familiar with these principles i recommend that book mm-hmm. so are they taking the the author's time and and culture into account so you can actually look at the way they reasoned to get to their conclusion since that is how they're reaching their conclusion, not a, a specific message from the Holy Spirit, this is something that we can right. evaluate. It's publicly accessible to all of us to look at the objective text. This is
1: the problem if somebody says, well, the Spirit showed me or told me whatever, and now you're just left with their subjective claim, mm-hmm. you know, and you can't assess it. You say, well, I don't see that here in the text. Well, that's what the Holy Spirit told me. Okay, now you can't do much for that person. They're mm-hmm. not teachable. And teachability is really, really critical at this point. You mentioned about the, how sin can cloud our judgment here. Well, lack of teachability can also cloud our judgment.
0: So my prescription would be if, for all of us, there, there are a few things that we need to keep in mind in light of all of this. If we want to know what the Bible really says, first of all, we need to pray for sanctification and for submission to God. We need to be willing to give up our interpretations if we find out that some theological position we have doesn't actually match Scripture. And we need to pray that the, there is a part where the Holy Spirit does illuminate the text for us and does apply it to us and does help us understand it. So I, I don't want people to think that there's the Holy Spirit's not involved in this at by all. By
1: let me make an observation. Illuminate means to turn the light on. So it's not giving you new information. Mm-hmm. It's helping you see the things that are already there. And so spiritual illumination needs to be justified by the words of the text. Anything that you think the Spirit is illuminating, that's just turning the light on. And the light's on everybody. Everybody should be able to see it from mm-hmm. the text That's a
0: great point. So we pray we pray that we would be able to see the text clearly in its context. You also have to work to read mm-hmm. the context. you have to yeah. work to read the entire Bible, the book, the chapter, the paragraph, whatever it is that uh, you're trying to interpret. And then we just use her- hermeneutics to our utmost ability so that we can interpret these things with with the help of the Holy Spirit, yes, but also with the objective, understanding of the text. Mm-hmm. And tr- in light of our submission to God and being willing to give up whatever position that we have, that m- mm-hmm. that may be wrong. So there's a lot going on here, and I love the Bible, so I want everybody to <laughs> understand it. <laughs> Hopefully mm-hmm. that will be helpful to people. But we are out of time, Greg. At least we got through two questions this we did. time. <laughs> Yeah. Well, thank you for your questions. If you have a question, please send that on Twitter with the hashtag STRask, or you can go to our website. Just go to our podcast page. You'll see a link to hashtag STRask, and you'll find a link on that page to ask a question. And as long as you keep it within about two sentences, maybe three sentences, then we will consider it for hashtag STRask. This is Amy Hall and Greg Kokel for Stand to Reason. <laughs>